All right. Well, we are working our way through 2 Samuel, did 1 Samuel, working our way now through 2 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, we are actually in chapter 2, which last time we met before I went on vacation, we developed chapter 2 fully. And if you remember, uh, at that time we saw that um, after the death of Saul, king of Israel, a uh, civil war broke out between the forces of David, who was the man God had chosen to replace Saul as king, and the forces of Abner, who was, uh, had been Saul's general. Now, Abner, Saul's general, and his cousin, by the way, uh, wasn't ready to relinquish power. He was pretty used to being top guy in Saul's administration, militarily speaking. He was used to his power, prestige. He didn't really want to relinquish that uh, to David because David had a general, Joab. And Abner was the kind of guy that didn't want to be second fiddle to anyone, uh, especially uh, Joab. And so what he does is he fights the transition from Saul to David. And uh, what he does was he takes Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, whose name means man of shame. Who names their kid man of shame? <laughs> Honey, what should we call him? Call him man of shame, Ishbosheth. Anyway, he takes Ishbosheth and sets him up as a vassal king, a puppet, uh, over the other tribes that were still loyal to Saul. You see, Abner knew Ishbosheth was a weak man, someone he could easily control so that he, Abner, could really be the power behind the throne. And guys, this led to a very dark period in Israel's history, uh, a bloody civil war that lasted roughly seven and a half years. Uh, 2 Samuel 2 verse 11 tells us that. And, and the reason I say this is because last time we developed uh, all of chapter 2 verses 1 to 32, looking at it and developing it just from the, the, the context of the passage, at the end of which we said that we wanted to explore though the idea of civil war as it relates to our nation, our church, or any church, and our uh, families. This morning, I'd like to look at the concept of civil war as it relates to our nation. Now, last time we got together, we said that the civil war was one of the blackest periods in our nation's history. It lasted four years and claimed 620,000 lives, more than any war in American history. And even though the outcome was good, I mean, slavery was abolished, it deeply divided our nation for many years. And yet, through a lot of hard work through the Reconstruction period and beyond, our nation was eventually healed and unified once again. Now, when you ask people about civil war, they will say, well, yeah, we fought a civil war in our country and, and basically tell you what I just told you. What most Americans do not realize is that we have been involved in a civil war in this country ever since our birth. Ever since our nation was first birthed, the devil has declared war on us, and we'll see how he is fighting that war against us. You see, the devil, who is the god of this world, has been working from the beginning of our nation's birth to bring us down, to destroy America. Why? Because he hates everything we stand for. You see, our nation was founded as a nation under God, a nation like Israel that God wanted to use to be a light to the entire world. We all know that, and we just celebrated a few uh, days ago, we all know that on July 4th, 1776, in the city of Philadelphia, there was signed one of America's most famous documents, the Declaration of Independence. It marked the birth of this nation, which under God was destined to be, listen to me, the greatest nation in the history of the world. People often forget 
that in declaring independence from an earthly power like Great Britain, our forefathers made, listen, an unashamed declaration of total dependence upon Almighty God. The closing words of this document, the Declaration of Independence, solemnly declare, and I quote, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, end quote. I'm sure John Adams didn't realize how significant his words would become as he wrote to his wife Abigail on the passing of the Declaration of Independence when he said, and I quote, I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of light and glory. I can see that the end is worth more than all the means, end quote. Of course, the light that Adams was referring to was the light of freedom. The freedom of each American to pursue those things that make life worth living. It was a radical idea uh, in the ancient world. People didn't have any hopes or dreams of just climbing out of the rut they were in. They just tried to survive. A nation founded on the principles that every American has the right to pursue life. Li in fact, the Declaration of Independence states that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their, listen, creator, not the state, by their creator with certain unalienable rights and that among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Guys, that was absolutely radical. There had never been a nation in the history of mankind that had been founded on those principles. But I also believe that the light John Adams had in mind when he wrote to his dear wife Abigail was the light of God's truth upon which this nation would be built. I believe this because John Adams was a devout Christian, and so were most of our founding fathers. Patrick Henry, who was one of our founding fathers, famous for the statement, give me liberty or give me death, said some other good things. Like, and I quote, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, plural, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. When was the last time you think your kids heard that in their history class? In fact, I talked to my sister-in-law in California, who's a middle school teacher, and she said they are thinking about doing away with history altogether in school out there. Why would you do away with history unless you're trying to divorce the young people from their roots, their heritage? Because you want them to think globally and not nationally. James Madison, the architect of the Constitution, said, and I quote, We have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political institutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according, listen, to the Ten Commandments of God, end quote. Noah Webster one of our founding fathers said, and I quote, the religion which has introduced civil liberty is the religion of Christ and his apostles. To this we owe our free constitution of government. I'll give you one more. A little later, John Quincy Adams, our sixth president and son of John and Abigail, said, and I quote, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. 
It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity, end quote. So listen, and I could give you dozens and dozens more, but you get the idea. The idea that our founding fathers were secular guys who wanted to establish a secular nation free from any religious influence is flat out untrue. From its inception, God raised up this nation to be a light to the rest of the world of his truth, which of course would be the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also a nation who would be an object lesson to the entire world that if any nation would make the God of the Bible their God, well, God would bless them and prosper them the same way he has done with America. And that, folks, is why the devil hates us and has tried to keep us, first of all, from becoming a nation. I challenge you to get into some of the history of the Revolutionary War. We should never have won that war. Britain was the superpower of the world at that time. What did we have? A bunch of farmers, you know? I mean, we had a ragtag army. God bless those folks. They tried their best and many gave their lives. But they were not a sophisticated fighting force. Britain was the world superpower. We're going up against the world superpower. We should never have won. And if you read the stories of the, from the Revolutionary War, every time it seemed like that said, we're done. Okay, I mean, our back is up against the wall. That, this is it. Suddenly God brought in some foul weather and fog and things and rain and, it, it, and, and the British couldn't finish us off and we escaped until finally we won our independence. It's obvious that God had his hand on the birth of this nation and Satan knew it. And Satan tried his best to keep us from becoming a nation. He was thwarted and now from that time until today he wants to destroy us as a nation. However, the reality is that Satan can't defeat a work of God, listen, through a direct frontal assault. He has to try to infiltrate our ranks and turn us against each other. In other words, he has to use civil war against us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25? He said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding will fall apart. Satan knows this only too well. And that is why his main strategy has always been divide and conquer. If you want to read an incredible book on this subject, you need to get Dave Capellian's book, The Snapping of the American Mind. In his book, Capellian traces how the forces of darkness have listened, subtly and methodically infiltrated into our government, into our culture, and even into the American mind, our thinking. The purpose has been to divide us against each other and destroy us from within so that those who are being used by the devil to accomplish his purposes, progressives and so on, they can bring this country down and then from the ashes they can remake America into the secular utopia they envision for it. In other words, as our president famously declared when he first won the presidency, he promised to, listen, fundamentally transform America. And at the time, most of us didn't know what he meant. Unfortunately and painfully, it's become all too clear. In his book, Capellian quotes Rush Limbaugh, who not long ago on one of his radio shows said, and I quote, I think he wants people to snap. I think Obama is challenging everybody's sanity. 
The more chaos there is, the more requirement there is for him to step in and control the chaos. Obama is literally pushing people to snap, attacking the very sanity of the country. I mean, all of this is so in your face, our face. Everything that people hold dear is under assault, deliberately making people upset. This is not what presidents do, end quote. Well, it is if they're following the left's playbook for fundamentally transforming a nation that has been built on God's commandments and values. Gopelian goes on. This process has been ongoing and long precedes Barack Obama. Indeed, America, Americans could not have chosen as their leader someone as transcendently unworthy of the presidency as Obama without first having allowed their minds and hearts to be captivated. Through constant indoctrination, intimidation, and emotional manipulation, a sizable part of the American electorate, to one degree or another, has been programmed over the course of decades by a subversive school system, an equally perverse news, quote-unquote, establishment, and a shameful and degrading culture. Of course, at the very nucleus of the myriad assault on traditional America is the rejection, at least by society's elites, of God and the, repu and the repudiation of the Judeo-Christian values that have long undergirded our civilization. This, in turn, has led to pervasive societal disintegration and a Pandora's box of endless and unimaginable problems, end quote. Uh, in the chapter of his book called The Blur, Capellian says that all of this can be traced back to progressives who have, and I'm quoting him, been taking over virtually all of America's key institutions for the past two or three generations. Folks, don't let anyone fool you uh, about progressives and their goal. Uh, they like to call themselves progressives because they tell us that they're helping us to progress as a society. Don't let them fool you. Progressivism is just a euphemism for socialism and Marxism. Do a little research. And it far precedes Barack Obama. In his book, The Death of the West, Pat Buchanan recounts the story. He sketches out what most Americans don't realize what's going on. He said, and I quote, the taproot of the revolution that captured the cultural institutions of the American Republic go back far beyond the 1960s, back to the World War I era, and calling to mind the abject failure of the international communist revolution Karl Marx had predicted. Marxists were stunned. The long-anticipated European war was to be their time. Workers of the world unite, Marx had thundered in the closing line of his communist manifesto. Marxists had confidently predicted that when war came, the workers would rise up and rebel against their rulers rather than fight fellow workers of neighboring nations. But it didn't happen. Workers of the world didn't unite, but instead resonating with patriotism and devotion to their religion fought for their beloved nations. How could Marx have been so wrong, wondered the acolytes of communism's founder. As it turns out, at least a few of Marx's apologists figured out the problem. The working class was being poisoned by its religion, Christianity. As Buchanan explains, the new generation of Marxist purveyors realized that all those workers, and I'm quoting now, had not risen in revolution because their souls had been saturated in 2,000 years of Christianity, which blinded them to their true class interests. 
unless and until Christianity and Western culture, the immune system of capitalism, were uprooted from the soul of Western man, Marxism could not take root, and the revolution would be betrayed by the very workers in whose name it was to be fought. In biblical terms, the word of Marx, <laughs> seed of the revolution, had fallen on rock-hard Christian soil and died, end quote. And so Marxists and Marxism had to be reinvented and relabeled. Hence the terms neo-Marxist, neo-Marxism, and cultural Marxism. You see, neo-Marxists strategized that overthrowing America through a direct assault from without, in the form of a military revolution, wasn't going to work. We were not going to buy into communistic principles, values, philosophy. We had been founded on God's word as a nation. And they eventually came to figure that out. And so they figured out what they needed to do was to infiltrate American culture and slowly bring about a revolution from within by taking control of the way Americans thought about things, and in particular, the way they thought about morality. In other words, the morality that was rooted in their Christian heritage and based on the Bible. One communist and social engineer named Antonio Gramsci taught that to change Western culture from within would require, and I'm quoting him, a long march through the institutions, end quote. Pat Buchanan elaborated on Gramsci's meaning when he said, and I quote, the arts, cinema, theater, schools, colleges, seminaries, newspapers, magazines, and the new electronic medium, radio. One by one, each had to be captured and converted and politicized into an agency of revolution. Then the people could be slowly educated to understand and even welcome the revolution, unquote. And so now the goal of the Marxist revolution, and this is where we all come in, was to destroy Christianity and the Church of Jesus Christ from American culture by brainwashing us against, against the values God built our nation upon. Well, Satan's no fool. He knows that, you know what, if he's going to bring America down, he's going to have to start at its foundation. If he can chip away at the foundation, if he can get Americans to turn on their own values, the ones rooted in God's word, the ones God established our country upon, if he can chip those away, then America would crumble and fall like any building would crumble and fall if you destroyed the foundation. That became the new objective. But how, how would the left accomplish this? Capellian writes, and I quote, neo-Marxist academics whose influence has been so pervasive in academia determined that the best way to achieve total dominance over America's culture was through, listen, psychological conditioning, not philosophical argument, end quote. Pat Buchanan adds, and I quote, Thus America's children could be conditioned at school to reject their parents' social and moral beliefs as racist, sexist, homophobic, and be conditioned to embrace a new morality, end quote. A new morality. Now next week we're going to talk about this new morality and how it was designed to divide and destroy the nuclear family because you know what, really, at the heart of it, a nation is only made up of families. So if you're going to destroy a nation, you're going to have to destroy the family unit within that nation. We'll talk about that next time. 
But guys, that's not the only way cultural Marxists are working to bring our country down so they can rebuild it into their progressive utopian image. They know that change will come much more quickly if you can create and perpetuate an environment of constant stress, discontent, anger, fear, etc. Again, quoting David Capellian, he said, and I quote, such radical change cannot be accomplished while Americans are calm, happy, content, and grateful for their blessings. Citizens must be unhappy and stressed out. Indeed, widespread popular discontent has always been the required fuel for the leftist transformational engine. Just reading a few pages into Saul Alinsky's leftist playbook, Rules for Radicals, which he dedicated to Lucifer, by the way, one encounters repeated confirmation that the very heart of radical change is keeping the populace angry, encouraging their grievances, stroking their resentments, and making sure they are continually upset. That is the primary psychological dynamic of community organizing, Capellian says. And since 2009, America has been led by a community organizer-in-chief and longtime master practitioner and instructor in Alinsky's far-left agitation methods, end quote. I'll give you one final quote. I encourage you to read the book. One final quote from The Snapping of the American Mind. Capellian said, and I quote, It's fair to say, after two or three generations of a secular, atheistic, leftist worldview, being constantly implanted and reinforced throughout every level of our society, that tens of millions of us are just profoundly confused, conflicted, and corrupted. Worse, many of us who have been tricked into rebellion against our own values now defend our confusion and corruption as though it were our God-given mission. Thus we are confronted with the current civil war, we are confronted with the current civil war between two Americas. On one side, we have those who basically still reverence God, common sense, reason, morality, natural law, and the laws of economics and of human nature. In general, the proven principles of Western civilization. On the other side are people who are confused, intimidated, or brainwashed, or else so covetous of power that they've abandoned all principle for the sake of that power. Capellian says, The singular but very real blessing in all this madness is that suffering often causes people to finally wake up. And once we're awake and paying attention, we have a fighting chance with God's help of redeeming ourselves and our nation. End quote. As we've already stated last time, civil war is the most tragic of all wars because it involves people from the same nation fighting one another, brother against brother, sister against sister, and so on. However, guys, the reality is that sometimes civil war is necessary, as when America fought a civil war to abolish slavery. Tragic, but righteous. I believe the civil war we are currently fighting for the soul and future of America is a righteous cultural civil war that we must fight and win. It's a war of light against darkness, of truth against error, and ultimately of God against the devil. We are fighting for the conservative Christian values that our nation was founded upon. We are fighting against those who are trying to destroy a nation under God and replace it with a nation under the state. And God help us if they succeed. On one side, 
There are those who believe in and cherish values like traditional marriage, the nuclear family, the sanctity of life, limited government, and the principles of hard work and self-reliance, just to name a few. The other side is fighting against those values while saying that America is a racist country, an evil empire that gained its wealth by stealing it from other countries that we oppressed and turned into our slaves and therefore needs to be listened fundamentally and radically transformed. Guys, this is a civil war we must win. America's survival is at stake. So what do we do? How can we win? Well, first of all, realize, please hear me out. First of all, realize that this election will pretty much determine if the America we have all grown up with will continue to be the America we know and love, or will it be replaced with a country that our founding fathers would never have recognized a country they would never, listen, would never have sacrificed their blood and treasure to establish if they had known what it would someday become. I know that there's a lot of people who say um, there's nobody good to vote for. The two candidates are both evil. And I don't think I can vote for the lesser of two evils. I'm going to sit home. Let me just say this. You may disagree with me. I'm going to say it anyways. It was because Americans sat home last election that Barack Obama was elected a second term. I know, but Mitt Romney was a Mormon, or is a Mormon. I'd rather have a moral Mormon leading this country than a Marxist who wants to transform us into a socialist Marxist utopia. That's me. That's just me. Okay? And guys, sitting home is not the answer. I don't like Trump. I don't like the way he combs his hair. Fine. <laughs> okay. I don't like the way you know he's so bold, knowledge, bravado. Fine. Here's what you need to decide. I'm, I'd never tell you who to vote for. I'm just. I think it's obvious who I'm voting for. Okay. But here are the three things that I think every American needs to look for in a president and especially in this next president. Three things. All the other stuff, you know, is, is not important. Here's the three things. Which candidate will best protect us against foreign enemies? Number one. Which candidate will best protect us against foreign enemies? Number one. Number two. Which candidate is best equipped to restart this economy and get our capitalistic system revved up again so that people get jobs. People need jobs. I mean, I forgot the percentage of those people who just stopped looking for work. It's incredible. Which candidate has the expertise to help this country once again get back into a place where our economy is running strongly again. And number three, and to me this is probably even the most important, which candidate will appoint judges to the Supreme Court that will share our conservative values? If we lose the Supreme Court, nothing much matters then. The Supreme Court is pretty much running the country anyways. And if liberal justices are appointed, the Supreme Court will be gone for the next generation, 40 years. And every freedom you hold dear is going to be challenged and may even be taken from you. 
I'll be gone. They'll come for me right away. They're going to come to the pastors who are preaching the word against homosexuality and abortion and anything the state is for but we're against, we'll be hauled off. To me, this is the issue before us. Now, as evangelical Christians, what do we need to do besides vote? Well, the first thing we need to do is get our lives right with God. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to these. You can write them down. I'll read them to you. I can give you dozens of these. I just picked a few. You know, Israel was God's light to the world in the Old Testament times, even as I believe America has been raised up by God to be a light in New Testament times of this world. So therefore, there's a lot of parallels, right? And God's dealing with Israel and how he deals with America. But Israel was in a bad place in Jeremiah's day. He was a prophet raised up by God to tell the nation, if you don't get your act together and repent, I'm going to have to judge you, and I don't want to do that. But God said to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 3, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, go and give this message to Israel. This is what the Lord says, O Israel, my faithless people, come home to me again, for I am merciful. I will not be angry with you forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. Admit that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and committed adultery, spiritual adultery, idolatry is what the idea is, against him by worshiping idols under every green tree. Confess that you refused to listen to my voice. I, the Lord, have spoken. So it starts with, with repentance and the acknowledgement of our wrong. Today, nobody wants to ever acknowledge they've done anything wrong. They're always excusing or accusing somebody else. Our politicians have taken this to an art form. They never admit they're wrong. I mean, they're always making excuses for themselves or blaming somebody else. God says, look, if you want me to, to remove you know, the coming judgment from you as a nation, the first thing you do is come back to me. I mean, get your life right with me. Acknowledge you're wrong. I'm, I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'll forgive you. Acknowledge that you have not been obeying what I have commanded. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. Isn't our God a merciful God? This one we all know. Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven their prayer, forgive their sins, and restore their land. Unfortunately, Israel didn't listen. They refused to listen. They refused to pray. So God sent the prophet Ezekiel to them to tell them this. Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31. I looked for somebody who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I was looking for somebody who would pray is the idea, who would intercede on behalf of the nation, who would stand between me and the nation, between my judgment and the nation, and would pray someone to stand in the gap so I wouldn't destroy the land. But I found no one. Can you imagine a nation that was not praying? We must be a nation, a holy nation. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about the church. We must be a nation of God's people who are praying for our nation of America. 
I was looking for somebody to intercede. I wanted, I didn't want to bring judgment. I wanted somebody to, to be pouring out their hearts to intercede. I'm a merciful God. I don't want to bring judgment. But nobody was interceding. Nobody cared. Therefore, I'm going to pour out my fury on them, consuming them with my fire. The fire of my anger, I will heap on their heads the full penalty for all their sins. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. I sure hope God doesn't say that about America. I'm encouraged because I know people are praying. I know you're praying. But I don't think I have to convince any of you here. We're done. I don't think I have to convince anyone here that our nation has lost its way. And you know, you know why we've lost our way? Do you know why we don't know where we're going? Because we forgot where we've come from. The sad irony is that men that God used to make this country great, men like Washington, Lincoln, and others, men that we have built monuments to, men that we honor on our currency, men that we have set holidays aside to, right, to honor their memory. But the sad truth is, if those very men were running for office today, they could never be elected because they're too right-wing. They're too right-wing. Now, I hope and pray that's going to change. The only hope for America, guys, is if God's people humble themselves, seek his face, pray, turn from our wicked ways, because only then will he hear us, our prayers from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal this land. That's our only hope. I, I don't care who you vote for. Well, I do, but it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if you're not praying for, a, for our nation. Because Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, they're not going to turn America around. And by the way, we need revival. And revival, as I've said many times before, will not happen in the White House. It has to happen in your house and in my house. And as we humble ourselves and we confess our sins and we ask God to revive us, our hearts, our church, and if enough Christians pray that prayer and mean it with all their heart, God will begin to answer. God will show us areas of compromise and carnality and worldliness. And as we bring those to him and confess them with all of our hearts and begin to turn back to the Lord, he will begin to pour his spirit out. And his spirit poured out on his church will bring revival. And then a revived church that goes into the world and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit will bring a great awakening to this nation. That's our only hope. So can I encourage you guys to pray for America, but to vote this coming election? And vote for the candidate who will best do the things we've talked about. And may God give us grace. We deserve judgment. I pray he is merciful and brings revival instead. Father, we thank you for your great grace and mercy. Lord, we are deserving of your judgment. As a nation, we have done everything as evil as Israel ever did. We have turned against you. We worship idols with four tires and roofs and things like that. We are trying to serve mammon, the God of money, the God of pleasure. 60 million children have been sacrificed on the altar of pleasure because we want our sexual pleasure, but we don't want the responsibilities of the children that are come about through all that sexual gratification. Father, if the blood of righteous Abel cries out to you from the ground, after Cain killed him. What does the sound of 60 million children crying out to you, their blood, crying out to you that have been aborted since Roe v. Wade to this present day? God, we are deserving of judgment. We ask for mercy.
And please, Lord, bring revival and a great awakening. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.